You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 27. That's page 460 in the Bibles in the seats in front of you. My name is Jeff Terrell. I'm the senior pastor here, and I've realized after first services that there's two reasons for me to introduce myself. One is because I shaved my weak attempt at a beard. <laughs> and so people have been coming up and saying, wait, something different about you? Yes, I have now no hair anywhere except for, I guess, my eyebrows. But, but then the second reason is because this summer has been an interesting one. Last summer, you knew that we would be gone for three months. And this summer, though, it seems like we've been gone almost that much. And we're getting ready to be gone again for three Sundays in a row. You will be blessed, though. You will have two pastors from our Great Commission Collective that I know will be a tremendous blessing to you. And then sandwiched in between those two will be a mystery preacher that will be a blessing to you. But we're going to be gone in the Romania trip, uh, looking forward to being with our brothers and sisters. It's been several years since Sally and I have been able to go and see our sister church in Bucharest, and we long to be with them. In fact, Audie was texting me just a few moments ago saying we can't wait till you get here. We're counting down the days, and you can see they've been saving up because our schedule is redonkulous. We, we hit the ground, and we're meeting with these people. I'm preaching Sunday morning. We're having elder meetings. I am leading with Sally a, a retreat for the pastors and wives and the leadership of the Great Commission Collective Eastern Europe, and we're coming back and meeting with the elders and their wives, and then we're going to the retreat center to do a little parenting seminar, and then we're going to come back, participate in the worship service, meet with the elders and their wives again, and then take the team from Ascend up to the mountains on Monday and then fly back. I'm exhausted just thinking about it. But we're going to take a few days on the front end as a family and just rest and prepare and really just celebrate our family as we get ready to send Meg off to college and start Mallory's senior year. So thank you for your grace in freeing us up to be able to do that. Please, we would value your prayers and we will look forward to the day when we will be back with you at the end of that trip. Psalm 27, let me read this amazing psalm and then we will unpack it together. Of David, verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. 
My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. Oh, you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For even if my father and mother have forsaken me, the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord. And lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Now, as I read this, and as the worship team sang this over us, perhaps you found verses with which you are familiar, even maybe some of them that are printed on a coffee mug or on home decor. Words like, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? Words like, I believe that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Words like, you have said, seek my face. My heart says, your face do I seek. And you're maybe familiar with these phrases. As we reflect on these, and as I read the psalm, perhaps you can see what I am concluding, and that is David is focusing in this psalm on the topic of God's deliverance. We know, don't we, that God will deliver us? We know his promises from his word that he will never leave us or forsake us. We we know that as Christians. If we read God's word, we, we see that either by the stories that we read or the actual words of instruction telling our hearts God will never leave us or forsake us. He will deliver us. Darlene Diebler knew that. She was a missionary to Papua New Guinea. At 10 years old, she writes that she declared to the Lord, Lord, I will go with you wherever you lead and at any cost. She learned at her 20th year of life when she married her husband, Russell, that that cost included being a missionary overseas. She and her husband served in Papua New Guinea, and in January 1942, the Japanese took over that territory. On March 13, 1942, Darlene writes, she remembered what her husband Russell said to her, remember one thing, dear, he will never leave us or forsake us as he was ripped away by Japanese soldiers and taken to a prison camp. That began a four-year journey for Darlene, That included horrific conditions, sickness, allied bombings, even spending some stints in solitary confinement, being tortured, and then finding out three months after it happened that her dear beloved husband had died. Darlene writes that over those four years, Psalm 27 became a favorite of hers, and I don't know about you, but I find a tension there that if she was so focused on Psalm 27 and God's promise of deliverance, 
That didn't seem to be what those four years demonstrated. And yet she acknowledges in her biography that it was a wrestling over those four years between what she read in Scripture and what she saw with her eyes. And maybe some of you are there right now. Maybe some of you would affirm that the Bible says he will deliver us. Maybe some of you would affirm that he promises to never leave you or forsake you. And yet, as you look around your life, what you see doesn't necessarily match up. And that's the value of Psalm 27. Because it gives us an opportunity, like Darlene, to wrestle and recalibrate our definitions of deliverance to his. Would you look at your big idea in your notes? Psalm 27 is an opportunity to ensure that our concept, our confidence, and our chasing after deliverance is recalibrated to the Lord's definitions. So we're going to dive deep into this psalm, spend some time looking around and hopefully finding some treasures that will equip us to say, no matter what our circumstances, that our Lord is with us and he is delivering us. There are four aspects of deliverance that I would encourage you to write down because they will serve you, not just today, but in the days to come. First, there is a saluting deliverance. There is a saluting deliverance. I'll I'll unpack that in just a moment. And this is found in verse 6. Now, I'll ask the team to put a picture up on the screen because I find in Psalm 27, once again, a tool that the ancient authors used called a chiasm. Chiasm is where the author would say some things at the beginning and then repeat them in reverse order, but draw the reader's attention to the middle of the chiasm, the, the middle of the section, because that is what the author is emphasizing. I'll tell you, I don't read the Bible and naturally see this, so if you're struggling, you're struggling along with me. But what I found as I read Psalm 27 is repetition. I saw the beginning and the end matched up. The the next sections in matched up, and and I found myself focusing on really verses 6 through 8, and really struggling to see, is that the section? But, but I've landed in the next picture that it's verse 6 that is the center of the chiasm. It's, it's verse 6 that David, the author, is drawing our attention to. It's verse 6 that really focuses on the topic of the Lord's deliverance. Look at the confidence of the psalmist. And now my head shall be lifted up, or... As we learn in Psalm 110, he will be exalted. How? Above or against, as Psalm 2.2 says, my enemies. Look at this phrase, though, in the text. Would you look at it? All around me. What's important for us to understand is that David is anticipating God's deliverance as well as continued context with enemies. Do you see the significance of that? David is actually showing us at the middle of this psalm what he will unpack in the rest of the psalm, and that is God's deliverance is more than favorable circumstances. You see, in the ancient Near East, ancient kings were faced with, every moment of their lives, something with which we are not necessarily familiar, and that is danger, danger, danger. 
When you look at kings, they would wake up and they would face political danger internally and externally, military danger constantly. Other kings were developing coalitions to be able to attack these kings. And so every day of David's life, he was facing enemies all around him. And what he's saying at the middle of this psalm is he's actually not expecting the enemies to disappear. And yet he's declaring that God will deliver him. God will exalt him. What was his confidence? Well, his confidence was in the character of God as well as his word. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 10 through 16 is the Davidic covenant. And David heard that directly from God and took God at his word, focused on God's character. When you read the Psalms and you see the ones especially that are written by David, David is constantly rehearsing the character of God in his mind. And as he does, he comes to this conclusion, which is a quote that the team will put on the screen, and that is he equates deliverance more with God being faithful to his character than favorable circumstances. And friend, if you can get this and this is the only thing that you take away from Psalm 27, this will change your life. If you can get to a place in your life where you pray the prayer of deliverance, and the answer that you're expecting from that is that God would simply be faithful to his character, and it doesn't matter what he does with your circumstances, now you're where David was. This is what I mean by salute. The word salute means to show or express admiration and respect for. I was talking to a military veteran this last week, and he was sharing with me that he had just text, texted his former superior officer. I said, I wonder how that went. Because when you talk to active soldiers, they don't usually think with great expect or admiration to their superior officers they usually have salty words to share but they do standard attention i'm looking at the mirror back there so i can see if i did that right they will salute they they show respect and admiration and what this military veteran was sharing is that after all of these years looking back on his superior officer he texted him saying how much he valued and respected all that that officer did for him. What David is doing in verse 6 is saluting the Lord and his definition of deliverance. He is doing so by recalibrating his expectations, his definitions, his opinions to align with the Lord's definition of deliverance. How do I conclude that from the text? Verse 6 also says, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. The, the idea of sacrifices, you can write down, equals cost. In the ancient world, when people would sacrifice animals, there was so much more than a religious exercise. There was cost. Animals in the ancient world were necessities. They were crucial components of their economic status. They were crucial to their survival. And yet they would costly offer sacrifices, but the psalmist says, with shouts of joy. Remember the context. His enemies are all around him. Then he says, I will sing and make melody to the Lord. We 
see throughout Scripture that when someone sings during difficult circumstances, there's something going on in their heart. So verse 6, despite the circumstances, David is settled in his resolve to respect, admire, and recalibrate his expectations of what deliverance is to align with the Lord's. That's where the psalm focuses. But then now we bridge out to number two, sourcing deliverance. And you can see with the image, now we're backing up from the center to verses four and five and seven through 11. Before we get into verse four, I do want you to remember David's life. Or maybe if you're here and you're not familiar with the Bible and and this church thing is kind of new to you, we're so glad you're here. We want you to be able to be on the same page as others who might be more familiar with Scripture. So let me explain that King David, who wrote this psalm, lived a life that was not comfortable. He was a shepherd when he was growing up, and he told King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 17 that he had to face wild beasts constantly in the field. And then, if you're familiar with the Bible, that 1 Samuel 17 passage is David actually getting ready to go face a giant by the name of Goliath, and then after he wins that victory, and now he's anointed king, and King Saul is actually still king, and so King Saul decides, I'm going to kill David. So for chapters in 1 Samuel, David's running for his life, and then he becomes king, and he's got a mess in his family. His son Absalom betrays him. He's got wars that are constantly breaking out. He's got his own sin. David did not live a comfortable life. And so he constantly had context that required deliverance. And so look at verse 4. It says, one thing. Do you see it in the text? The word order is very important in the original language. And in the English, it reflects the word order properly. And whatever comes first usually is the focus. And so David is drawing attention to this phrase, one thing. In the middle of his life of challenge, in the middle of his need for deliverance, he says, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that would I also will seek. Have you ever had those times in your life? You ever had a time in your life where you said, Lord, if you will just do this, I will never ask for anything again. Lord, if you just will do that, I will do that for you. I spent one of these prayers when I was in college. Remember, I had made a mess of a situation. I was dating the most beautiful woman in the world. She was so godly. So I logically broke up with her. You idiot. I remember just a few days after I kind of did the Luke 15 prodigal son thing where I came to my senses and sitting there on the bus headed to Oklahoma and thought, "Uh uh-oh. And I spent one of these prayers, Lord, if you'll just deliver Sally from dating any other guys, (laughs) I'll be a pastor. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't say that. (laughs) But I did say something to the effect of, I will never ask for anything again. Now, some of you might be looking down in the front row and saying, I don't see her. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Oh, she was here, and she is my bride, and God answered that prayer. My prayer for deliverance was favorable circumstances. My prayer for deliverance was to 
give me Sally. That was my one thing. I needed to be recalibrated, though, and, and, and David helps us. His one thing, verse 4, have I asked of the Lord, that will I also seek after, that my circumstances will change. Is that what it says? That my enemies will be destroyed and never come back again. Because that's what we pray, isn't it? Like we realize, oop, nope, not just now, like forever, no more enemies. Like a genie in a bottle. But look at what he says. And th this, beloved, gives us the source of what true deliverance is. He says, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. And if you're taking notes, you can write down, presence. God's presence equals deliverance. Whenever you see the phrase house of the Lord in the Old Testament, the authors are pointing to God's presence. The tabernacle, the temporary tent that was set up in Jerusalem, the temple that would be built by David's son Solomon was the location of God's presence because there was the Ark of the Covenant. But he uses other imagery, doesn't he? He says to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire. The word means to investigate, to consult, to give great care in the investigation in his temple, the presence of God. Verse 5, for he will hide me in his shelter. The word literally means uh, the abode or the house in the day of trouble. Verse 5, he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. The word tent is used over and over and over again in Numbers and Leviticus and in Deuteronomy to describe the tent of meeting, the place where God dwelt with Moses. David is tuning his heart to better understand what deliverance is. Here's a quote. He is equating deliverance with God's presence. So if I can really put some pressure on, if you can learn that first phrase, that quote that we put up a few moments ago, and then this one too. He's equating deliverance with God's presence. It's God's presence that he's longing for. It's God's presence that is the one thing. Here's another quote. David wants to be in the presence of God, which he anticipates will result in his conduct being righteous no matter his circumstances. I don't know about you, but that's what I want. Look at what he says in verse 7. He says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious. He's acknowledging, I, I'm, I know I'm going to need grace. Verse 9, he anticipates that God may hide his face from me. He anticipates that God could turn away from his servant in anger. He, he acknowledges in verse 9 that he could cast him off, that he could forsake him. He acknowledges in verse 10, and I think a better way to translate this in English is, for even if my father and mother forsake me. He, he's acknowledging that his enemies are around in verse 11. And he also acknowledges in verse 11, just like you and me, we need help, don't we? Because I don't know about you, I don't naturally get to this place when the bullets are flying. I don't naturally get to this place when you begin to recognize that your whole life may change. You see, at that moment, it's too late. This is the moment to prepare your heart for that moment. 
is to understand that as you come to God and recalibrate your definitions to his, he will put you in a place where when he ordains that life changes, you're able to, what verse 11 says, be on a level path. Not be derailed. Not have your faith destroyed. In fact, Darlene shared in her biography that when she was in solitary confinement for all of those weeks, a six-by-six-cubed room where every day she was killing mosquitoes, and she said that they stuck on the wall, fattened by her blood. How could you live in an environment like that week after week without your faith derailing, not crumbling before your captors, speaking of God's grace to one of the most horrific Japanese guards that anyone could describe? Darlene says this, it was a reminder that God's presence was with me in that cell. Wow. Teach us, Lord. Teach us to view deliverance as your presence. Teach us to be grateful and satisfied by your presence. And friends, we need help with that. The, the, the solution is here, the solution is here, and the solution is his Holy Spirit. We need to grow in our ability to see the character of God. We need to grow in the ability to recalibrate our expectations and definitions of deliverance to his. We need help, and David is focusing our attention and equipping us by giving us his example in these verses. So we see that we are to salute God's deliverance. We see the source of true deliverance, but then number three, we see that there are some who attempt to swap the definition of deliverance. That's verses 2 through 3 and verse 12. Go back to verse 2 and see in the opening words an interesting concept. Look at that first line in the word assail. I don't know about you, I, I don't use this word hardly at all unless I'm quoting what about Bob. Yeah, nobody really got that in first service either. You know that scene where he's like, I sail, ahoy, see, a sail, I sail. Yeah, should have struck that out from my notes. The word assail means to draw near or to move near. This can be a positive thing. If, if the person whose footsteps you are hearing or if the voice that you are hearing that is approaching and moving near, somebody you care for, somebody who cares for you, it should elicit within you a, a desire to see them, a, a desire to move toward them, but that's not who is moving near. Verse 2 says these are evil doers. And in the Hebrew, there's an interesting way this is written because it draws attention to the subject of the action, not just the action. See, there are people in life who just seem to always be in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know people like that? Maybe you're one of those people. Where, where your heart seems to be in a good place, you seem to be a good person, but you just seem to stumble into evil. That's not who these people are. The word is drawing attention to the fact that these people are intrinsically evil. 
They're focused on their own agenda, focused on their own advancement. They, they, they live by the motto of survival of the fittest. Everything that they do in your life, everything that you are to them in their life and in your life is for the sake of their advancement, their agendas, what they want to do. And David uses incredible imagery here. Verse 2 says, they are going to eat up his flesh. In my mind, I think of Jurassic Park. But I think he was probably thinking back to his days with Goliath. You can write down 1 Samuel 17, 44. Where, where the giant yelled out to the young David, I'm going to offer your flesh to the birds of the air. He's probably remembering that. But then he talks about an army encamping. They're, they're desiring to overpower David. He talks about war that's arising. They're going to be aggressive. He talks about fear, and, and, and fear is the result of being terrorized, isn't it? Do you have people in your life that they understand those are buttons to push? They don't just have to smack you or actually do something to you. They can just throw words at you, and that's effective. These are the enemies of David, and they have an objective. Look at verse 12. The objective is false witness. It's deceit. It's lying And what are they lying about? Yes, they're lying about David, but even more than that, listen, they're lying about the definition of deliverance. Here's a quote. Ultimately, the tactic of the enemy is to swap the source of hope for deliverance. Because listen to this. If your hope is in something in this life, something in this world, your health, your wealth, your careers, your relationship status, your possessions, the enemy can do something to that, can it? There is no guarantee that those things will continue. There's no guarantee that those things won't change. And so if your hope of deliverance is in those things... The enemy has you. But if your hope is in the rock that is the presence of God, that changes everything. That's a superpower. Go with me on this. Imagine, if you will, that the great enemy of the church, Satan himself, is moving in such a way where you find out that you have cancer. I wouldn't say that it's Satan that put it in your body, but... If the prince of the power of the air is the one who is orchestrating this Babylon system around us, that's part of the system, the corruption of cancer. And, and you find out that you have cancer, and yet somehow, even though there are tears, even though there's, there's, there's anxiety, even though you're not perfect, you are not derailed in your faith. And you can respond as they're giving you radiation by evangelizing the medical staff. That's what Sal LaFosso man who is an elder here, many of you know him and love him, continues to do to this day. That's a superpower. Your boss calls you in and says, you know what? You have your Bible out on your desk and that just is disrupting around here. Uh, You no longer have a job here. You being able to look that boss in the eye and say, thank you for the time here. I know my Lord will provide and you walk out with joy even though it's difficult. That's a superpower. 
as the economy ebbs and flows, as the political winds shift, as all of these forces in our lives tend to derail us, isn't it a superpower to know as long as I have the presence of God, I will be joyful? That's a superpower. That's what David is drawing to our attention. You know, one of the ways you can tell whether or not you're exercising this superpower is evaluate what you pray for. When you're sick, what do you immediately pray for? Usually healing. If there's trouble going on at work, what do you pray for? A raise, a change in your position. If there's trouble going on in the economy or in politics, what do you pray for? We won't go down that road. None of those things in and of themselves are necessarily bad, but if they're primary, beloved, we swing and miss. See, what should be primary in our lives is the presence of God. Here's a quote. Often the circumstances requiring deliverance are intended to get us to a recalibrated perspective that deliverance seeks first his presence. Ow! Because i got to practice what I preach. This is hard. I don't have this down. I don't want to live this way. I I want to live a way that when I have something bad in my life, I can just simply ask God, fix it and know that he will. Don't you want that? No, we don't. We really don't. That's the way the world responds, and that's the way, tragically, Saints in the Bible have responded. Think about Abraham. Do you remember when he went to Egypt and he went to the land of Abimelech and he looked at his wife, Sarah, and said, wow, she's beautiful. She'll probably come with me into this land and they'll see her and they'll get rid of me. And so he was fearful. And instead of going to the presence of God, he took matters into his own hands. Didn't work out very well for anybody, did it? How about the kings of Israel and Judah? As they had enemies attacking them, they often did not go to the presence of God first. They often would go to other nations and other solutions. Didn't work out well for them. God uses circumstances in our lives that truly require deliverance to get us to a place where we acknowledge and pursue his presence first. The world is constantly and subtly whispering in our ears that something the world offers is better than present. That a comfortable life is better than present. That a promotion at work is better than presence. That healing from cancer is better than presence. Beloved, listen. David, as a man who could relate to us, says, no, there's nothing better than presence and he's warning us by telling us something that we need to hear look at verse two the adversaries and foes who are trying to lie about where true deliverance lies verse two says literally in the original it is they themselves who stumble i love that we need to be reminded of this don't we because some of you, as I look out, I can just see. But by, by the way you're presenting yourself, life is heavy. I can just see by your presenting issues that there's more below the surface. And so as I say this, you, you, you would acknowledge that this is, 
true, but it's hard to live out. And I'm saying yes, and David's saying yes, and the Holy Spirit is saying yes, but start here. Start by aligning yourself with the true definition of deliverance because everything this world has to offer is on shaky ground. So we salute deliverance. We don't want to stumble with this deliverance. We don't want to swap definitions of deliverance. We don't want to seek other sources of deliverance. We want to finally, number four, solidify deliverance. We'll put the picture up on the screen because it's the beginning and the end that solidifies our moving forward with deliverance. As I mentioned, I assume that there are some of you that are going through a time in your life that necessitates deliverance. Life can get heavy. Life can go in an opposite direction that we would choose. Maybe some of you have never, actually everybody has experienced that, haven't we? 2020. Remember those days? And I know some of you are like, no, pastor, I was solid as a rock. Let me just give you two words and see how you respond. Toilet paper. (laughs) I was starting to think about, you know, some white t-shirts that I didn't need. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) We were in a time when we needed something solid. We needed something to hold on to. We needed answers. And you remember those days where we'd wake up one day and the news would say, do this, and then the next day, don't do this. We'd see politicians saying, this is the law. No, 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 this is the executive order. Then we'd go out to social media, and that was a mess. That was a dumpster fire. And then you started having people in the church and outside the church that are lobbing grenades. I can't believe you're handling COVID this way. I can't believe you're handling COVID this way. I can't believe you're not even paying attention. I can't believe you're paying too much attention. And that was a time when just about everybody in the world experienced this, a need for deliverance. David is drawing our attention to what true deliverance is, and that is when we experience something or someone in our life that has the potential to change our trajectory, we experience one of two types of fear. Fear is provided twice in this text. In fact, here's a quote. Fear, as the Bible portrays it, is an acknowledgement of something or someone that has potential to change our current trajectory. And as 21st century Johnson Countyans, we love to have control, don't we? We control our temperature. We control our pace of driving. We control so much of our lives. We control when we eat. We control what we eat. But if you have something in your life that you realize, ooh, that has more control than I do, and it can and probably will change my trajectory, you will have fear. Either a fear of respect and awe and reverence, Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen, or the fear that we see here in verse 1. Because the second word that is translated, be afraid, is a word that means to shake, to tremble, and to shiver. This is something that threatens the trajectory of David's life, just like Darlene experienced on that fateful day in March of 1942. But he says here, whom shall I fear? 
Of whom shall I be afraid? So there's something that is infringing upon what naturally should cause us to fear, what naturally should cause us to not be solid. There is something that David is reflecting on that gets him to a place of stability despite his circumstances. And what we're going to do is we're actually going to bridge out to come back in to see what that is. Would you write down, and you can turn there if you want, but 1 Corinthians 16... Verse 13. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Which, by the way, this is the verse that is the theme for our men's conference in October. Men, let me encourage you, sign up for that. We need a booster shot of biblical manhood. There are so many voices in the world around us that are presenting a false view of manhood. We need to realign with what the Bible says, and at least two of the three speakers are going to be effective in doing so. (laughs) I'm the third speaker. (laughs) And I know that's October, and that's college football time, and I'm supposed to be at a football game in Mizzou. I'm hoping that it's at night, but regardless, I will be here, probably because I'm speaking but mostly because this is so valuable. Men, we need to be able to stand firm. We need to be able to stand firm as individuals. We need to stand firm as husbands, stand firm as singles, stand firm as parents, as employers and employees, and the Bible is the source of that. And actually, in the Greek, it's as though Paul is using the same phrase that we'll see in Psalm 27, 13, and 14. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, but it leaves us asking the question, how? Which there's another passage I would invite you to write down, and that is Joshua 1, verses 7 through 9. The Lord said to Joshua, Moses' assistant, in verse 7, only be strong and very courageous, same concept that we saw in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. But here's what he says and gives us more of the how, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand nor to the left. So friends, if you want to be able to stand firm and to be solid, no matter what the circumstances are in the life that you are experiencing... You should meditate and apply God's word. And men, I want to specifically talk to you. Is your life characterized by feasting on God's word on a daily basis? Last week, we talked about there's three ways you can be doing that. You can simply read it, and the Holy Spirit will lead you. But then you can actually carve out some more time and linger on it and begin to look at the words, begin to look for patterns and linger in it and pray over it and meditate on it. And then if you really want to carve out some time, get some resources around you so that you can align your understanding and reading with the Bible in its own context. Not asking first, where am I in the text and what does this mean to me? But saying, okay, what was the historical context? What was the language? How does this connect with the dots of Scripture throughout all of Scripture? What is the redemptive purposes of God that are being advanced by this passage? And there's three ways you can do it. And and you start out small and then you continue to grow and then you will act like men, man. It's partnering, keeping each other accountable 
to do this on a daily basis. And so we are to be strong and courageous. And how do we do that? By the word of God. But then turn over to Deuteronomy 31 if you, all right, it's Joshua 1. Deuteronomy 31, verse 7, then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, be strong and courageous. Do you see? There's that phrase again. For you, Joshua, shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. And if you're familiar with the story, it's easy to just jump ahead and forget the human element here. Moses, the founder of an organization that had swollen to over a million people, had brought them to the the gateway of the promised land. Joshua himself had just gone over and seen that there are giants in the land. And Moses is like, nope, that's on you, bro. I'm out. (laughs) Imagine how Joshua felt as a human being. And so Moses has said, just like Paul did, Just like the Lord had said to Joshua, be strong and courageous. And yes, the word of God is a tremendous resource. But look at verse 8. Here's what Moses moves quickly to tell Joshua. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. So do not fear or be dismayed. There you go. So now as we go back to Psalm 27, now we're ready to see what David is teaching us. Verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Do you see it in the text? If you want to get to a place that no matter what you experience in your life, you will not fear, you will not shake, you will be solid, you will have a stronghold, it begins with light. And what's fascinating about light, I saw this in a commentary, and I was like, nah, I don't know if I agree with this, but it's true. A human being cannot generate light on their own. With our physicality, I can't go in a dark place and just be like Groot. Guardians of the Galaxy, one of my favorite movies. We cannot do this. And so we are dependent on someone or something outside of ourselves. And the psalmist is drawing attention to the ultimate source of light. The Lord is my light, John 8. Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. He is the source of salvation. So, friend, my question to you is, as we wrap this up, have you responded to the light? Have you acknowledged that you are living in darkness on your own, and the only source that can provide light in your darkness is Jesus Christ? Have you acknowledged that you cannot save yourself, that it is the completed work of Christ It is his life, death, and resurrection and his invitation for you to embrace that by faith and receive forgiveness of sins by committing your life to King Jesus. Have you done that? Because if not, it's not going to be possible for you to have a life characterized by stability no matter what your circumstances are. But then, friend, if you have responded to that gospel, look down at verse 13. The psalmist says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And what's fascinating about this is he knows that means that life is still going to be hard. The only way that you can see God as good, no matter what your circumstances are, is verse 14, waiting on the Lord. And while you wait, be strong and let your heart take 
Friends, waiting is difficult, isn't it? Waiting as a child for Christmas was torture. Waiting as an adult can be torturous. Waiting for that phone call, waiting for the results of the test, waiting to find out what that meeting your boss said you need to have in a few days actually contains. Waiting is tough. Waiting for God to do what he plans to do in your circumstances is difficult. But what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 27 is the way you can be strong and let your heart take courage is recalibrate your definition of deliverance to be the presence of God. You bow your heads and close your eyes. There's more to the story of Darlene. Darlene writes in her biography that the most challenging guard was one that she had a rare opportunity to share the gospel with. And years later, she heard on Japanese radio this same guard proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, us living this out is not just for our benefit, not just so we don't have to be shaken in the midst of our circumstances, but as we do, people will ask, if you have circumstances that require some horizontal deliverance and it doesn't change, but you still have joy, you still have courage, you still have confidence, people will say, how? And you will have the opportunity to share the hope that lies in you, the hope that is found in the character of God, that God will be faithful to his character no matter what happens to your circumstances. Oh, friends, we all need to grow in this, and we will spend the rest of our lives growing in this. I pray this morning has been another building block to put on our foundation so that no matter what we have experienced, are experiencing, or will experience, we will recalibrate our expectations of deliverance to simply be the presence of the living God. Father, I thank you for this psalm. Thank you for familiar words and phrases that I pray are more effectively understood in my own heart as well as everyone that is listening. Would you move the knowledge into application so that we can rest and celebrate and take joy no matter what circumstances we have, knowing that your presence is with us and that that is true deliverance. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.